0: This is an audio-only episode of Friends and Neighbors, a podcast from Mr. Rogers and new filmmakers, the Wagner Brothers, in which we discuss depth and simplicity in an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, the Into the South Trilogy. For reasons I cannot explain, some part of me wants to see Graceland. I landed Saturday and spent a few nights wandering the empty, sun-bleached alleys of Nashville's booming South Side, behind the Country Music Hall of Fame, Music City Center, the Johnny Cash Museum, and all the rest of Broadway. I'm seeing America for the first time in a long time. So much Bud Light, so many electric scooters, such big vape clouds. We look happy to be outside though, and no, pretty much no one's wearing a mask, but we don't look well. We're pale. We haven't shaved. We're heavier than we used to be. We look lost, staring blindly into our phones and tugging on our Starbucks. Still, Nashville feels like a city on the brink. Its town elders have seen the climate maps, and they like their odds better than Baltimore's. It reminds me of Jakarta or Kuala Lumpur. Glittering, neon-wrapped glass condos towering over crumbling concrete buildings, vast gray parking lots, bales of rebar, and dumpsters larger than buses. Hope is not lost, though. There is always music, and a courageous few who defy the odds and persist. Like Tiffany from Tyler, Texas. My friend, former MTV news writer Annie Reuter and I, made plans to see Squeeze at the Ryman Auditorium. The auditorium, built by riverboat Skyon and civic leader Thomas Ryman in 1892, was the longtime home of the Grand Ole Opry. Nashville grew up around it. It's must-see. Barely two notes into the band set, though, I knew I couldn't stay. The place was lousy with unmasked, dim-eyed, wide-smiling Gen Xers. And so, just a few seconds before cueing Annie for our exit, I closed my eyes to try and really feel the rhyming. As I ran my fingers over the grain, knots, and bumps of the pew in front of me, I understood. Music is church. It is loss, pain, sin, sadness, revelation, and salvation. It is faith in the invisible. A few blocks later, Annie and I sat down for an outdoor cocktail and got to talking with our young waitress, Tiffany. And where do you hail from, Tiffany? I asked. Tyler, Texas, she answered. Tiffany from Tyler, Texas, I exclaimed. Come on, too good. What made you leave Tyler, Texas, Tiffany? She put down her clipboard and said, well, to be honest, I'm gay and my parents wouldn't accept that. So I left. In the middle of a pandemic, at 22 years old, with a 1000 bucks in the bank and no job. Faith in the invisible. Like Tiffany, everyone I've spent time with this week is struggling, trying to reconcile their work and their life, their American dream and their Delta variant reality, the crumbling concrete with the high-gloss skyline. And so for reasons I can't quite explain, some part of me wants to see Graceland, to stare into the King's three television sets to count his 150 gold records, admire his fleet of cars, and then stand quietly in the meditation garden with his stillborn twin brother Jesse, his mother, and his father on their 14-acre estate next to a Bob's Big Boy, Dollar General, and Renaissance. center Poor boys and pilgrims and families, we're all going to Graceland. Ten bucks for parking. I thought, of course. The lot was shimmering like a national guitar, sun-baked, half-empty, dotted with slow-shuffling fans. I turned off my rental, a Kia Sportage Natch, and stepped towards a collection of white, corrugated aluminum sheds that constitute Elvis Presley's Graceland. Not his house, but the dozen or so hangar-like buildings this is prime tornado country, folks, across the street from his house. houses cars planes barbecue joint movie theater ice cream shop plus a myriad of souvenirs and collectibles bobbleheads face masks bow ties shot glasses bottle openers backpacks fanny packs ice packs graceland first opened to the public in 1982 just five years after the king's death It is the most visited privately owned home in America with over 650,000 guests a year. It rivals the White House and Hearst Castle with which it shares much in common. Even after a three hour interstate sprint from Nashville though, Graceland sneaks up quickly. It isn't terribly well signed there on Elvis Presley Boulevard, just west of Interstate 55, nine miles south of Memphis and less than four miles from the Mississippi state line. But the neighborhood is nothing special, really. A double-wide, strip mauled collection of Dollar Generals, Family Dollars, Taco Bells, and KFCs. I was running late for my VIP tour on account of an on-again, off-again appointment with the last surviving purveyor of the nudie suit, Manuel Cuevas. Nudie suits, of course, are the flamboyant, rhinestone-encrusted outfits made famous by country-western singers in the 50s. From Johnny Cash to Elvis Presley, Graham Parsons to Jeff Tweedy, the suits have never gone out of style. The suit is named for its inventor, Hollywood couture tailor Nuta Kotliarenko, known professionally as Nuti Cohn. Manuel was married to Nuta's daughter, Jamie Lee, so I made an appointment for a fitting with the 88-year-old tailor. When I arrived though, Manuel was stuck in Los Angeles. His assistant had forgotten our appointment. Come back in the morning, she suggested. In the morning, an email greeted my sleepy eyes. He's still in L.A. How about Saturday? The $190 VIP tour includes a meal at Vernon's Barbecue, I don't eat meat, a human tour guide instead of John Stamos on an iPad, a private shuttle bus, and as it ends up, the opportunity to see real Elvis artifacts up close. And so it wasn't the jungle room or the three television basement lounge with carpeted walls and taking care of business in a flash painted in blue and yellow, my go-to design should I ever have an extra basement, that moved me. It wasn't the newly remodeled racquetball court, the pool, or even the meditation garden. Too much fucking perspective. It wasn't even the secret safe in the VIP room where our tour guide let us hold the keys to Elvis Presley's pink Cadillac. No, No, it was his sunglasses. These were not run-of-the-mill, early aviator, TCBEP sunglasses, the ones you see at Halloween. These were something altogether cooler. Square, 70s, post-leather jacket sunglasses, bloated Elvis, dying Elvis, supercycle stinger-era Elvis, trapped by his fame, racing his three-wheel motorcycle up and down the driveway like a caged animal. My first pair of sunglasses were Foster Grants. I saw them at Ben Franklin and Waterloo and begged for them. They were silver, metallic framed with mirrored lenses. I felt seen and invisible simultaneously. Since my first visit in 1993, I have approached Graceland with a similarly cool reserve, a strange detachment from the America I see around me, a strange disconnection from the Americans who visit him there, and yet, I am him. I am them. And we all are Elvis. I began to identify with him in my 20s as an icon or an archetype, a type of man, not a pop singer. He's our own Icarus, at once clueless and naive, bold, inept, and calculating, a rube and a genius in equal turn. He is the king with nothing, the emperor with no clothes, at once flush with everything a man can imagine, all of our earthly desires, and yet heartbroken, isolated, infantilized, objectified, and alone. And maybe that's why I return repeatedly, year on end. Here is the American dream writ large, the mansion, the stable, the cars, the horses. Here is the American dream writ large, the awards, the costumes, the plumes. But here too is the cost, the melancholy, the entourage, the spotlight, the paranoia, the stillborn twin, the overbearing mother, the ineffective father. Ghosts and empty sockets. It's all there, glamor and squalor, fame and infamy, joy and sadness, who we aspire to be and, who we really are. Like a window in your heart, everybody sees you're blown apart and everybody feels the wind blow. I burst through the doors of Fame studios like a deer in headlights, wide-eyed, disoriented, and out of breath. I'd stumbled through a side door just seconds prior and been rebuffed and redirected by a cluster of young, handsome, chain-smoking rock and rollers. I blew unwittingly past the studio's matriarch, Linda Hall, beneath a hand-painted sign that read, Through these doors walked the finest musicians, songwriters, and producers in the world, and past four walls of framed and signed headshots. Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Dinah Washington, Greg Allman. I pushed through the entrance of Studio A straight into a group of tourists, gasping and guffawing at the legendary space. You got a reservation? One of the tourists asked. I laughed and said, I do, shimmied past and up the stairs to the control room where my pal Jason Wallsmith was teaching the band a new song. Just a few hours east of Memphis and south of Nashville, Alabama's Quad Cities, Muscle Shoals, Sheffield, Tuscumbia, and Florence sprawl forth from the banks of the Tennessee River like a low gray kudzu. There, at the crossroads of Appalachian, Creole, country, rhythm, and blues cultures, Alabama native Rick Hall built a musical empire and sonic aesthetic that launched hundreds of careers. This is Tennessee Valley Authority territory, a low country of cotton, peanuts, and soybean fields, overgrown hollows and riverbanks, dammed and engineered to provide depression-era electricity for all. This is not a town in a hurry. It's a place moved by the steady rhythm of tides and seasons, the rise and fall of bait, and the drone of locusts. Like RCA Studio B in Nashville or Abbey Road in London, the room itself is magical, purpose-built for great live sound and excellent isolation, and it's a time warp. The studio is all shag carpet, wood paneling, and soundproofing, plus a collection of some of the finest vintage instruments, amps, and mics on the planet. Moreover, there is a uniquely workaday approach to recording here. Session players are part of a cohesive, consistent, colorblind, and agnostic crew. The Swampers, they're called, who serve but one master, the song. That's one thing that's not negotiable in Muscle Shoals, session music director, swamper, and guitarist Will McFarland told me. And he knows, Will toured with Bonnie Raitt and Jackson Brown before settling in Muscle Shoals. It works like this. A demo recording, in my case, an iPhone audio memo, is charted using a Nashville numbering system that quickly and easily annotates the progression, crescendos, breakdowns, starts, and stops. Each song begins with a quick discussion around the mixing board and then we go into the studio to start playing We're recording within two minutes and typically get a take in less than 20 And though I came with a bundle of songs ready to go I surrendered to the Swampers and the spirits, ghosts, and ancestors of the South to choose and color mine In the end, I tracked five songs in two days, including two that were just a few hours old The first, Living Without You blends Elvis's sadness, Loretta's heartbreak, and Johnny's resolve. This morning when I woke up, it begins, I finished last night's beer. I remembered that we broke up and began to disappear. The other brand new song was inevitably and unsurprisingly inspired by a Nashville waitress from Tyler, Texas. The verses are a hymn, cautionary list of challenges, pitfalls, and problems that beset us all on our respective journeys. The road to heaven isn't paved with a song, it warns. But this is right where you belong. Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Download our podcast on Apple, stream it on Spotify, or watch it on Facebook and YouTube. Sign up for our newsletter at friendsandneighborshow.com. And for heaven's sakes, if you're digging what we're doing here, please share it with a friend and leave a comment. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and until next week, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.